Moreno Verabeno. Hello, Amos. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am good. Wow, it's our second podcast, Everything Under the Sun. And today we have a very interesting topic. Yes. What's better, living in a bigger or smaller Jewish community? It's a very interesting topic because it's relevant in many communities around the world, Mm. especially outside of Israel. And specifically, we're talking about communities in the diaspora, although maybe we'll touch a little bit on smaller communities in Israel, but that's a different conversation. So really, we're talking about smaller versus larger communities in the diaspora, and what are the advantages, specifically, to living in a smaller community? Mm. I guess what we want to get out of the way is, as um, one time I was in the, I had the privilege of taking Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs um, for um, a ride from the airport to his hotel when he was in Wellington. And one of the things he told me that smaller communities are becoming smaller and larger communities are becoming larger because for the most part, people are drawn to larger Jewish communities, especially if they are from or if they have a strong level of observance um, for obvious Reasons you have more resources, more shuls. Um, Jewish education is more. Uh, you either have more of a selection, or you have an actual facility. In smaller Jewish communities, you don't always have a, a formal Jewish education, which is one of the challenges. And you have more, you know, places to eat out that are kosher, and there are obvious advantages to larger Jewish communities, which is why we really want to focus today on the flip side. What's the advantage, whether you're observant or not, but even if you are observant, for living in a smaller Jewish community? So why don't you start us off? Um, So in my experience, the only small, only community in the diaspora that I've lived in is over here in New Zealand. Um, And... We are a very small community. Um, I don't really have a point of comparison to it, though, which is an interesting point mm-hmm. to start with. Um, well, you can compare it to Israel. I can compare it to Israel, but I can't compare it to other communities in the diaspora. Mm. But have you visited like Melbourne or Sydney? Not. I've not attended services or. Oh, okay. Things, but I've visited the places. You visited so the places. Okay. Uh, were you involved in Bnei Akiva there? No. Like your brother Natan was just at the federal camp. Yeah. In Bnei yeah. Akiva. So mm-hmm. maybe you can draw a little bit from like that experience, even though it was your brother, it wasn't you. That's, a, that's assuming he talks to me. That is assuming he talks <laughs> to you. That could be a, a, another podcast about families and family dynamics. But... Uh, <laughs> See, I almost did not expect you to bring that up. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we do prepare for this, but I throw in curveballs every once in a while. So, almost, do you talk to your brother, Nathan? Not about Fed Camp. Not about Fed Camp. Good answer. Yes, it has to do with cricket, maybe, maybe Minion, but not Fed Camp. Okay, fair enough. So, well, what's your impression, though, of living in a small Jewish community? Uh, and even talking to people about 
about what they like about being in a small community, even if you can't compare it to other ones, like just objectively. I think in in a small community, you're almost forced to, I wouldn't say forced, forced is not the correct word, but you're almost obliged to be involved. Because otherwise, the, the, there is no community without involvement. Mm-hmm. Uh, having said that, that doesn't mean that everyone wants to or has to be involved. Mm-hmm. Um, personally, I've been involved. You know that I've been involved. Um, yeah, very much so. I mean, think about your specific case of um, me approaching you, slightly twisting your arm, but also helping you in, uh, in being chazan for Shacharit Roshan on Yom Kippur. Yeah. I mean, first of all, you did a great job, despite yes. what, despite what you know, you may have self-critiques <laughs> about it. And I know you're a little it's bit of a perfectionist. That is another topic. <laughs> but, but you really did a great job. And by the way, you know, you also got like, uh, like women, you know, giving you like shidduch offers afterwards, you know, as the eligible bachelor. So, I mean, you did a really, really good job. But if let's say we were in Manchester or yeah. London or Johannesburg or other Toronto, other larger Jewish communities, albeit there are smaller congregations, which I'll get into in larger communities. But for the most part, in high holidays, for sure, they'd have like set Chazanim. Yeah, yeah. I remember when living in Israel, Yom Kippur, although the prayers were, were slightly different, there was mm-hmm. always the one guy that I remember always did Neila. Always. That's he was right. The only one that did, that did Chazanot for, for Neila. That's right. And it's really open less to community involvement and leadership roles. Mm. People can join, you can work your way up. And by meritocracy, or if someone like retires or retires from this world, you can then you know get to a point where you fill that role. Um, but but usually there are yeah people who are going to be ahead of you, and things are set. And usually you're much more of a passenger in a large Jewish community as opposed to being in a smaller one where you can be a leader. Part of yes. the reason that you know that you got to be Chazan is because you know Tai wasn't here. Tai would have been the Chazan with me, mm. um, even though even if Tai was here, I would have still asked you um, and Gary because I want more community members to be involved. Yeah, um, I don't want there to be the only set Chazanim here. Yeah, yeah, because uh, even if I'm not Chazan, as even though I like being Chazan. Uh, and even if my voice was 100%, which it wasn't, uh, <laughs> I would still want you and Gary and other people, I've wrote down other people, to be Chazan. And I think it's mm. really, really important. Um, and uh, I always think about, on your point, uh, Richard Noir from Nelson. Well, yeah. I can mention this because he talks about this very publicly. He's from Manchester. So his point of reference is Manchester, North Manchester, even South Manchester is a sizable Jewish community, but North Manchester, where Mayor Goldidge is from, for example, yeah. very large, very chashuve, important Jewish community, especially in the Orthodox world, but not only. And, and um, he says that in Manchester, he would be the person sitting in the back of the shul, just like minding his own business. Mm. And now he's in Nelson, and he's 
effectively the president of the, or the head of the Jewish community, and Nelson. How much is he involved? So first of all, he brought me out. Uh, him and his wife, Maxine, uh, uh, brought me out to consecrate the new Jewish cemetery in Nelson. Yeah. He's involved in that. that was... He hosts so many Israelis. He's actually the go-to person to host Israelis and tourists in Nelson, in Nelson. for Shabbatot, but in general as well. Mm -hmm. um, he has the shul on the top floor of his dental office, yeah. gentle dental, with like a separate Torah that's from Nelson. And he's talking to me about rebuilding the shul because there used to be a shul there. And he they brought out whether it's myself or other or Chabad Shlichim, or he wasn't he's in charge of that. He runs a community. He gets the minion together. Um, he he get, gets people around coming to Yom Kippur service or Shana or meals or Tu Bishvat or whatnot. He would never be involved in that in Manchester. Mm. And it gives them a whole other level of appreciation of Judaism. And it's something that you kind of get, instead of the word forced, I'll use the word default. By default, right? Yeah. The default setting for a computer is whatever it's preset to, right? You could you could then doctor it up and include more settings. But basically... A bit like if, the microphones today. A bit like the microphones today, that's right. <laughs> so, if, but if you have, like, if you're, like, the Jewish person who knows Hebrew, by default, you're going to be asked to lead services. Yes. Even yeah. if you're not trained to be Chazan, if you ever thought you were going to be Chazan, and Chazanut is just one of the examples. Think about all the different things uh, Jews are going to be involved in in small communities. I always go to the Shechita. Yeah. Right? I mean, even as a community rabbi, if I was a community rabbi in Connecticut or in Toronto, which I was an assistant rabbi in Toronto, I would never touch the Shechita. There's a whole organization that yeah. does that. There's, you have a shochet there. Yeah, there's many shochetim there. Mm. Like in Melbourne, there's three teams of shochetim just in, in, in Melbourne and Sydney, right? They have Mel yeah. Melbourne specifically. So, you know, you have, and there's two competing agencies and whatnot, but, and they provide food for Australasia, not just for locally. I mean, there's also 130,000 20 or 130,000 Jews in all of Australia. So there's a lot of Jewish people in Australia. Um, we buy their meat as well, but we can't get our own local shechita. But chickens, for example, we cannot import. We're only reliant on our own shechita. And lambs, because lambs is much better. New Zealand lamb is much better than Australian lamb. Yeah. Yes, I said Correct. that on a podcast. Yeah. Yes. No, that's good. You can quote me on that. I mean, that's one of the places we agree. We don't. Oh, absolutely. And Whoever doesn't agree, by the way, has never tasted this Zealand lamb. <laughs> and then you're just wrong. You're just wrong. Okay. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not going to be politically correct too much on this podcast. That's so good. You're going to have to deal we with it. We don't want to. That's correct. This is, this is not a draw shit. This is my podcast. With, with Amos. <laughs> so, <laughs> don't have to worry about that. You don't like it? Tough. So, so uh, we do the shechita. Now, what does it mean we do the shechita? I mean, we are reliant on the shochet from Melbourne until myself or Rabbi Friedler learns shechita, which we do plan to do one of these days. But there were rabbis, many rabbis, in fact, in Wellington, were 
Shochtim, including Rabbi Dovrat, yeah. including Rabbi Mizrahi, Rabbi Elima, yes. they, they actually did, did um, shechita, some only for chickens, but still, um, it was what they did, something that I will, please God, learn one day. It's in my plans. Amen. Especially during COVID, when we can't bring on promo, because he'd have to quarantine for two weeks, and he won't do that. Yeah, that wouldn't be fun. So that's the obvious disadvantage of living in a small community. You have somebody like Avram, we're still reliant on a larger Jewish community to be the Shochet. But when it comes to community involvement, you know, I'm involved intimately in even the business plan of the Shechita, never mind the actual Hashkacha of it. And like Rabbi Friedler and I have these conversations. He's a rabbi in Auckland, for those who don't know. that and We would never deal with this if we were in a larger Jewish community because it would be outsourced to a shechita agency, and rabbis, that would be their full-time job. Yeah. yeah. And they do that five days a week. They're only involved in shechita. Maybe yeah. they give classes here and there, but you won't have a community rabbi who deals with shechita. And it takes up a lot of our time. Like that week, we put an easy 80 to 100 hours of work. That week, with the salting and the packaging and the, the dissemination of it and the schlepping of it and... and uh, uh, coordinating the people, getting enough people to do the packaging and the pricing, and we deal with all of that here. Yeah. And then you, when you buy the the chickens or the lamb that you were involved in, I, I joke and I say, you know, I know each chicken by name. You know, <laughs> like like the other day, I ate Gertrude, right? And Gertrude was a great chicken. And Gertrude, we ate her on, on Shabbat. Mm. Now, how do you know, by the way, if a chicken's going to be eaten in the middle of the week or Shabbat? You know? I'm going to reveal the secret no. in the podcast. So basically, Avramel, the, the, the worker, holds the, the, the chicken from its, uh, from its back, mm. basically. And Avramel holds its neck. And then most chickens just go, Bakak! you know, they make like a sound. And then with his knife, he does a shechita. It's very swift. And they're dead, right? That's a very humane way of killing. So now I'm always I, I wondered the first thousand chickens that I saw being killed, what they were saying until I realized mm. Avramal telepathically asked them, weekday or Shabbos? And they go, <laughs> and whatever they answer, that's that's, that's what that's it is. You know. So Gertrude ate her on Shabbos because she said Shabbos. Shabbos. And then, and then um, you know, <laughs> my kids know that the chicken is merited, you know, merits to be eaten on Shabbat and elevates itself as part of the Shabbat meal, mm. as a mitzvah. Yeah, know? there's the old joke about um, the chicken and the turkey on complaining about Thanksgiving. And the turkey saying, oh, I'm going to lose all my friends and Thanksgiving's right. coming up. And the chicken turns to the turkey and he says... She says, I guess. Um, have you heard of Shabbat before? <laughs> <laughs> you think you That's have right. it hard. That's right, yeah. <laughs> but um, you touched on a point of Shechita, which is interesting because being in a small community, you would say that there's not necessarily as big of a demand for meat year-round. So there's no need for there to be Shochtim that do a nine to five five days a week. Well, that's true. Of, there is no need. It doesn't make financial sense. Yes, correct. So th- there's that. That's an interesting point. The other point that I might, 
I don't know too much about, but I think is is very true, is the price of kosher meat outside of Israel. It certainly is, is very high, but also um, within a small community because there's a demand created because it's so limited. Um, well, the... it's probably a bit higher than. Well, it really depends on your business plan, mm. who you work with, and if you spread your fixed costs enough variable costs. Right. So it's really, I mean, that needs to be a whole podcast. If, I, if we're going to talk about shrita, <laughs> I can go through shrita in New Zealand. It's a real interesting thing. It is my favorite topic to speak about. Um, I can do that before February. Before the, yeah, the please God, if it's in February. Yeah. Please God. So, but basically it's like this. Like, for example, I'll give you an example of that, just of the finances of it, right? Yeah. For a lamb, it doesn't make too much of a difference because a lamb, you pay like $10 a kilo and you have to sell the back half, which you sell for about $6 a kilo. Although I met somebody that possibly can get it for us for less. Inshallah, amen, soon in our days. But uh, for a lower cost. And you always try to keep the cost down. Because the goal of the community, unlike a store, is not to make a profit off the sale of the meat. Correct. Rather, is to cover the cost and to provide it for the, even with a 35% markup for the store's overhead, is still covering cost. It's all it's doing to make sure that we can have meat, um, more meat available for a lower price. And look, we go through, Wellington goes through approximately 1,000 chickens per annum. Yeah. And often yeah. about the same. So, I mean, we're, there's 2,000 Jews in Wellington. Some of those, by the way, get outsourced to Nelson. I mentioned Richard Noir. He orders big orders. Um, mm. There's a guy now from Auckland who became a, uh, a member of ours to get the 20% discount of members on our meat because there's a benefactor. I can't say his name online. Um, I know who it is, but a uh, great benefactor <laughs> in New Zealand, Jewish guy who actually subsidizes both communities for the members uh, 20% discount on buying meat. It's any meat, by the way, even if it's Australian meat, to keep the shrita going. And he's a big, big advocate of shrita. Um, but for example, when we brought out Avramel, you pay for the plane, pay for his his uh, his cost, right? Yeah. You pay hotels, all these like, travel, transport, all these things are fixed costs. We used to kill like eight hundred to twelve hundred birds each time, and then you put the fixed cost into the price of the birds, and it is pretty high. Pretty high. Yeah. Recently, because of a lot of things I won't get into, because it's not our topic today, uh, we've been doing 2,000 chickens each time, 2016 to be precise. Most yeah. of them are kosher. So, Good because, year. Maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe. 2016, <laughs> yeah, pre-COVID. So that's how many chickens we do. And you take the same fixed cost, to two th- you spread it over 2,000 birds versus... 1,200 or 1,000. Yeah. And it makes a world of difference. Mm. A world of difference. Yeah. And because they're also chickens that are free-range chickens, and essentially organic, but for sure they're free-range chickens, the price is high, than higher than regular chickens. Like even in a normal kill, that's, that's not a shrita, right? Even for the regular New Zealand kill. It's the price is higher because of higher quality birds, good meat too, really good meat. Yeah, um, and so 
that means a lot of things. Really, the price difference we have, and then we'll go back to our actual subject, is only like two or three dollars, maybe four dollars variance between the non-kosher chickens and our kosher chickens in the same category. Mm. So it's really not far off. It's not far. It's really not far off. It's not like double the price. But, but you'll consciously know that because you go to the supermarket to buy food, yes. regardless of whether, you know, they, they sell chickens. And sometimes curiosity does get the best of you, and you look at the price of the non-kosher chickens. Right. Not to buy, but you look at of the price it of it. Of course it was for comparison. Yeah. yeah. And, and you're seeing, it's kosher, I'm paying more. If you look at free range, though, you'll see. Because what people do is why I came up with a new shita sign. If you see, if you look at the chickens... And you see it's like sold at like $9 a kilo or whatever it is. Mm. You'll be like, oh, that means the lamb is really, is really a huge price difference. Yeah. It's a huge price difference. So, you know, some of our, our average cost of lamb is like 30 something to 40 something dollars a kilo mm. because of the lamb, which we won't get into now. But then you look at New Zealand prices, you pay like $9 a kilo or $10, $12 a kilo. You're like, that's not fair. That's just not <laughs> fair. And it really isn't fair. But it's the price of keeping kosher. And it is. and um, fine, we do it. You know, uh, it's not easy to be Jewish that way. Um, but by the way, that's uh, outside of Israel. Um, you you still pay more for kosher chickens or lamb or beef in any Jewish community versus the regular trafkill. Yes. So that's really not a huge difference. The only difference is that for us, it's more hands-on. We don't have it ongoing. Yeah. And you like things that in Israel or in or in uh, or even in Melbourne or in Toronto, you go to the supermarket mm. and buy kosher packaged fresh meat. Yeah. You can't do that here. It's no, all frozen. That's true. It's all frozen, okay. and so you sacrifice that. But you appreciate the shechita process, and so many more people know about the shechita process mm. than they would otherwise. But you think about other things, for example, like building a sukkah. You know, there's members, we built the sukkah here, mm. volunteers. And so you have to get involved. You get involved in how the sukkah built. Instead of a larger Jewish community where, oh, they build a sukkah every year, and yeah. it's just built. Yeah. And you can build it in your own house. Mm-hmm. But... You're not involved in the community's building of the sukkah. But I even think about general community involvement, say around Kiddush, and you can speak to that because your family puts on one or two Kiddushim a year, Yeah. right? So why don't you describe for everybody like what's involved in putting on a Kiddush? I'll give you a point of reference. In the village shul where I used to be an assistant rabbi in Toronto, if you sponsor a Kiddush, you literally, all you do is pay the shul money. Right pay the shul for regular kiddush and I'm talking about there's like like 150 people there on a regular Shabbat like baseline mm. and on a big Shabbat you can have 250 to 500 people right yeah so a baseline kiddush you pay 400 Canadian dollars 240 of that I know the math 240 of that goes to the actual cost of the food and 160 is essentially effectively a donation to the shul interesting so that you know because overhead and the staff and all those things, right? Yeah. 
That's what it is. Like my wife and I sponsored a kiddush for Yom Ha'atzma'ut. We actually, uh, and you can't make things at home. You could make things there, but generally you either buy it from kosher bakeries or it's all made there. Or it's all outsourced from kosher uh, uh, restaurants mm. or bakeries or, or catering or whatnot. Yeah. Accredited kosher. In their kitchen, you can't make stuff at home. You can't really even make stuff there. So off the bat, that's a big difference. It's a huge difference. That's a mess. And then if you want to have a huge kiddush, just some people pay a thousand or two thousand dollars for a kiddush. Yeah. They have like a mega kiddush. I mean, like cholent and schnitzels and sushi and it was like we and challah. We used to sit there and my wife and I used to say the mega kiddush team. It's like unbelievable food. There's so much food. So we basically yeah. said this is lunch, and you're like stuffed and there's leftovers. Yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, that reminds me of. Natan's bar mitzvah, yeah. where we had food for like three weeks after. Hey, but even speak about a bar mitzvah, a bat mitzvah here. Yeah. And a kiddush here, so why don't you speak to that? So in the kiddushim here generally, generally, um, are put on by families and members of the community. Um, and they purchase some stuff from the one-stop kosher shop. Shout out to Leon's. Uh, they put out some stuff they buy some stuff from there they buy challah we only have sometimes but they or you can make challah or you can make challah and some people do and some people do that but but tell them like where they make it yeah so in in, with the kiddushin if you're making things you always come into the community center to the kitchen that's right across the hall from where we're recording this um and and I have to supervise and yeah, have to look at all need, the ingredients to book a time to, and to if somebody is in the process of conversion or somebody's not Jewish they can still put on a kiddush I have to light the fire for them or mm. somebody Jewish all the different hashkacha things that's right yeah um and yeah it's 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 more of a I think in terms of what we just heard about sponsoring a kiddush and giving money to the community there's, there's value in that, obviously, but I think for us, because we are, are doing it from within, you're, you're putting your, it's a bit like like staka, right? You can pay money for staka, mm-hmm. or you can pay with time. You're putting your time and effort into the kiddush in order to give back to the community. But you're also paying money because you're buying all the ingredients. Yes, so you're doing a bit of both. Right, but you're not giving a donation. The point is that people here make the kiddush from scratch, mm. and every kiddush is different. For example, in the village shul, as a point of reference, or other shuls in Vancouver, I was at. Like you have set food, you yeah. know. There's a set amount of cholens made. Even by the way, if nobody sponsors kiddush. They're still going to put out the the kiddush. They'll still put out the two hundred forty dollars every week, and hopefully somebody retroactively will sponsor the, the kiddush. Yeah. Interesting. In somebody's name. Because the shul just does that. Meaning, why is that so important? The point I'm trying to emphasize is that if you're walking into the village shul, let's say you're there for like 10 years, you can be there for, ten, or anybody can be there for 10 years and not lift a finger as far as community involvement or leadership. You can literally just be there, yeah. go to the classes, go to shul, enjoy the kiddush, never arrange it, be guilted into mm. it a little bit, you know. You have to pay a membership dues or whatnot. There's some people go there, don't pay membership, you know, but they just like, you 
Hopefully they will in the future, right? And you can literally just be a passenger. Enjoy all the services. It's all done for you. And you leave. And you have a great time. Or you don't. And you go to another shul. But it's, you take yeah. it for you can take it for granted. You can. You can. You really can. Here, if you want a kiddish, you literally have to make it. Yeah. And that's true of many small Jewish communities. Mm. You don't have the worker make it. You don't have the staff that makes it. And I think, even though it's challenging, it beats this beautiful thing. Because think of all the people, like even one of your family puts on a kiddish. You have special dishes. You, know, you chop up the cheese. You know, you mm. know what goes into it. So you appreciate it. Yeah. And when you see a kiddish, you're not like, oh, I expect a kiddish. And you have a sense of entitlement. In larger Jewish communities, and, and I'm not saying this across the board, but there are people, hmm. even though I think they're a minority, there are people who have a sense of entitlement. You have to put on a kiddush. This kiddush is good. This kiddush is not so good. And start ranking it. Hmm. Say, you know what? Go to small Jewish community. You put it on once every four or five months, six yeah. months. And and the work so so tell us a little bit like even like what work goes into it, what planning goes into even your own kiddush which is a small one yeah but but like I know well I say that I know but I know mom, your mother and sister do my mom makes all, all the work I know I know but but you know what goes what's involved so yeah what's involved. I do I do know what's involved so mom will normally go into the kosher shop on Thursday she'll buy the things she'll Sometimes she'll take uh, work off on Friday, so she can uh, schlep all the stuff upstairs, keep it in the kitchen, mm-hmm. mark it all so that people know that it's for the Kiddush, so that the rabbi doesn't sneak in and have a snack. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, but I, I can twist your arm. <laughs> um, and then Friday, if she's got the time, she'll... she'll um, She'll maybe make something. So we have this uh, dish that we often put up for, for Kiddush. It's typically had within the B'nai Israel community from Rosh Hashanah till Sukkot, realistically. Um, and it's, it's, it's called halva, mm. not like the halva that we, we know and love, which is also good. But it's, it's, like a, uh, it's made from corn flour and... Um, and Sesame. coconut milk. Oh, coconut milk. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was really good. And it's stirred, and stirred, and stirred, and stirred, so and stirred, and stirred, and stirred. I think I ate, Total like, seven reduces. of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. It's gluten-free, yeah. too. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's a lot of work. People, like, for larger Kiddushim, what they'll do is they will literally, especially for bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs and stuff, from like one or two months before, start buying stuff, yeah, storing yeah. things, marking it off. Um, you have to get a lot of stuff. Like, there's no kosher catering company. No. Right? In larger Jewish communities, you say, I'll pay Holy Bagel in Israel, and they will, they'll say, okay, for 2,000 shekels, 1,000 shekels, 1,500 shekels, I can cater for 40 Thank people. You. What do you want? Yeah. Coffee, this, that, 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 done. You just pay. It's just money. Mm. Right? Or you can make things yourself. Some people yeah. do. Uh, but here, you don't really have a choice. So, Speaking on the on the not having a choice, we earlier mentioned things like chazanut and shechita 
and um, being being thrust into the into the spotlight a bit. Um, so in terms of that, I think um, there's a parallel to be drawn here to leadership in the Torah, where sometimes in the Torah, um, the leader doesn't necessarily want to be the leader, but they're sort of thrust into that. So there's a, a bit of a parallel there in the oh, sense of living in the diaspora and being forced to uh, go into that role of leadership without necessarily wanting to. For example, I can speak to myself, where I don't necessarily want to be in the spotlight mm-hmm. to, you know, the Hasanut and, and things, but I do it. Mm-hmm. Not because I particularly want to. Yeah, but you do it very well. But it's also a skill that you but you acquire there, now a thing, right? for your it's, life. It's a it's a different topic because we are going to talk about confidence eventually. Mm. Um, but um, because I'm not re- necessarily wanting it, that's where the perfectionist comes. <laughs> and mm. Because I want to to do a really good job. Mm. Because I'm being forced to do it, well, not forced to do it, but asked. I'm being I'm being asked to, made to really. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it's an art to get it's, somebody it's to an do something. It's an art, and it's like getting someone to do something and getting getting them to be happy with it as well. Yep, yep. Yeah, but think of yeah, even think of like Hugo and Gatsby and other people. And your brother, Natan, as well. Mm. Uh, they do Musaf. They learn how to do Musaf. They could very well do that in larger Jewish communities as well. Yeah. Um, but here, it's like you have a limited amount of people who could do that. Yeah, that's true. And the contribution to the community is much more appreciated mm-hmm. rather than, well, you want to be Hazan, fine, but we have another 20 people who can do it. Yeah. So, uh, which which really leads, like segue to a whole other aspect of this, and this is true across the board: smaller Jewish communities versus larger Jewish communities. Mm. In larger Jewish communities, what does it mean? Larger Jewish communities, it means mainly three things. One, you have a sizable Jewish population. Two talking now specifically about Orthodox Jews, you have a wide range or somewhat of a choice between different congregations. There's people who literally go to their congregation mm. and nowhere else. Even within the Orthodox world, never mind other, uh, other denominations of Judaism, <laughs> which is exactly what I want to touch on. And three, you'll have a greater Jewish infrastructure which includes kosher catering and restaurants and schools and educational opportunities. And, uh, uh, you know, you'll have a Hebra Kadisha that's literally only a Hebra Kadisha, mm. as opposed to here, getting back to the first subject or one that we talked about, like anybody can get involved in a Tahara here versus only the Hebra Kadisha do it, right? So yeah. you're involved in all aspects of Jewish life. But what I want to touch upon here is the unity almost... You can call it force, or you can call it by default. That the unity that you essentially have to create 
you have to create in a smaller Jewish community and the diversity that that you have dafka in a smaller Jewish community that you won't have in larger Jewish communities. Let's take it to the to the extreme. Let's say, and this is what I observed in my first four weeks here on the job, and I've been here now for two years, based on the uh, Jewish... Uh, yeah, yeah, Gregorian calendar. Just after the Chabad Noah is my first yeah. one. So based in October 9th, I landed, so I've been here for two years. Yeah. Already. Thank God for uh, And I remember the first four weeks I came, I was living in Tekoa, beforehand in Jerusalem, really involved in... Uh, in the Jewish scene in Jerusalem and all the different communities there. And I looked around the room, around the shul, at the 50, 60, 100 people that came every Shabbat. And I said, let's say there's 60 people there. Where would they go to shul if they were in Jerusalem? Right? Let's say we, mm. let's say we went to Jerusalem so, and we were gathered in a hotel. And I said... You know, like we'll dive in Friday night together, and I'll say, you know, for Shabbat morning, go wherever you want. The whole city is there, and we'll meet for lunch at one. Mm. Just go wherever you want, anywhere, anywhere. Yeah. Right. So I think between sixty people, they'd go, even sixty families, even let's say, they'd go to at least at least twenty different shuls. And yeah. there's hundreds in Jerusalem, right? Yeah. There's... But I mean, so like, what do I mean? Even, first, some would go to, let's say we were in New York, right? Mm. They go possibly to 30 different shows. Because there's reform, there's conservative, different types of reform, with yeah. structures, there's cultural ones. There's ones like Park Avenue Synagogue, which is more chic, um, and but it is a mixed egalitarian service. There are Orthodox shuls that are egalitarian, Orthodox shuls that are modern Zionist, Orthodox shuls that are like a YU perspective. You have Haredi shuls, you have Hasidic shuls, you have different types of Hasidic shuls, mm. you have your Chabad shuls, you have the Chabad shul that doesn't talk to the other Chabad shul. You have all these different and you have the one that's more Litvak, the one that's more modern Zionist, the one that's not Zionist but modern Orthodox, the one that is Haredi and Litvash, the one is, is a Yekaminian. So there's no end to it, right? Yeah, well, if you, if you even take the same approach, mm-hmm. apply to us over here in Wellington, right. I would not be going to the same shul as you, correct? Most likely. Yeah, I'd come to your shul for a cultural experience for the Bnei Israel. Exactly, but uh, my regular but, but, but shul, your would regular be shul will else. not be will, will not be the same. Correct. Um, in fact, chances are, if chances we, are we we're both in Israel, meet. we never meet. We never meet. Yeah. Well, we'd meet in the army, or if we work together. Exactly, but we don't work together. Well, other yeah, and then you have the and shuls in Jerusalem that are Anglo shuls, mm. the, sh- the shuls that are British shuls. The non-American shuls. These are these are. I'm, I'm talking. I'm telling you about like actual shuls that I know. Yeah, yeah. Shuls that rent buildings. Shuls that do you rent? Shuls that operate out of gyms. Shuls mm. out of people's homes. Shuls that actually have a community that have a rub. The Algerian Sephardi shul. Yeah. You have on one block in Amatia Street. Mm. Amatia Street is basically like Hopper Street here in Wellington. That's the size of it. Very yeah. small side road. Yeah. There's seven shuls on that side. Seven shuls. Yeah. 
There's a Hasidic, there's a Litvak, there's an Algerian shul, there's a Ramban, or a Benila, which is a very sizable shul, there's a Sephardi, regular, run-of-the-mill, kind of North African Sephardi, slash Moroccan Sephardi, there, um, and there's um, the Chabad shul in the back. Yeah. But seven shuls. Seven shul, summarize... There's one building that has three shuls, one shul on each floor. Yeah, if you were to summarize Israel in one straight, in terms of Jewish life, that would probably be it. Yeah, <laughs> and that's only Orthodox shuls. Yeah, exactly. There's Reform. There's conservative there. There's a lot of different. Mm. There's Orthodox that have women being chazanim. The Orthodox that don't. There's a trichitza. There's all these different, all these different flavors. There's various levels of egalitarianism within Dati shuls, and you can choose your niche. The point is that it's very niche. Yes. And in Israel or New York or Toronto, or London, or Melbourne, or you keep going, all those communities, what ends up happening is that you stay within your niche, and you don't know the other types of Jews Mm. in your city. Whereas a small Jewish community, all the different types of Jews come together in in Wellington, at least one of two Jewish communities, or congregations. Yeah. Um, there's Temple Sinai, which is progressive, and there's us, which is orthodox, but there are people that are actual orthodox, people that are more traditional, like your family. There's people that are very secular, people yeah. that are intermarried, people that have kids that are halakhically Jewish, people people have kids that are not halakhically Jewish, there's people that have same-sex marriages, people have, have heterosexual marriages, people that are not married, people... All these different people that are converts, people think that are converts, uh, non-Jews that come for services to experience Judaism. People convert Orthodox. Hmm. All these people come to one community. And they're all accepted as one community. Now with the new membership rules, they can all become members. Yeah. You would never have that in a larger Jewish community. No. But then, for example, when you talked about you would come to a B'nai Israel synagogue as a as a cultural as a cultural experience. experience, yeah, not everyone is going to do that. That's correct. Which is people be like, yeah, I think people. I won't name names. In our community that like like there's one person in our community which you know like they go to Yekashul and that's the only place they go. Mm. They go to somewhere else if they were invited like for a, a simcha. Yeah, and even then they may go to the end of the service. Yeah, but their minion and. By the way, I don't think there's a problem with that. No. But I'll tell you the issue it creates. And rabbis in, outside of Israel, as recent as one rabbi in Thornhill, Ontario, in Asia Torah, when we had, my wife and I, had a Skype interview there um, during their COVID, when we were still in level one or two. Uh, and we got an interview there about life in New Zealand, and they thought it was interesting. So one of the things he lamented this rabbi, they do a lot of outreach. It's a great rabbi, by the way, Rabbi Rothman, great rabbi in, in Thornhill. He's been a rabbi for over 40 years. He does a lot of outreach. He, he talks to any Jew, right? Yeah. But he runs an Asia Torah shul, right? Every shul has their niche. Yeah. And those who know Asia Torah know it's a niche. I won't get into what it is, but it's basically a Litvak type of niche, mm. like the Mir Yeshiva outreach program essentially that's what it is so 
he says that in smaller Jewish communities, he's even referring to like Winnipeg and Vancouver and Halifax, which have like 5,000, 20,000, 15,000, mm. you know, 4,000, like more Jews than Wellington. Yeah. She have like 2,000 or 1,500 or so. Yeah. Okay? Um, then you. Even if you have different congregations, even if you have like 20 shuls, they'll still do a lot of things together. Like I remember in Vancouver, the Yom Atzma'ut ceremony was with 1,300 people, mm. which was like 10% of the Jewish community, 8%, right? It's not bad, yeah, but not 50%, right? And they would all get together around Yom Atzma'ut. Think of us, we have Hanukkah in the park. Yeah. It's for, and Auckland also does. And it's for... Everybody. And there's something there for everybody. But you don't have the Reform Hanukkah in the park and the Orthodox Hanukkah in the park. Yeah, that's true. Whereas in Toronto, you'll have the Bnei Akiva one and the Bnei Brit one and this school's one and that school's one and this school's one, etc., etc., etc. It'll be fragmented. How bad is it in larger Jewish communities that rabbis lament the segregation tell you how bad it was. There was, I taught for three years at Netivota Torah Day School, which is in Toronto, in Thornhill. I, I learned there as a kid as well. So it was really special to teach there for three years. Great, great time in my life. From 2010, 2013. Now literally, the school next door was Leo Beck, which is a liberal, reform, Jewish school, Jewish day school. There's obviously differences. I won't get into the differences. That's for another time. But there huge differences. It's not the same education. I would not send my kids to Leo Beck because I don't believe their, their, their take on Judaism is the one I want my kids to adopt. But, but however, that being said, I do want to... I, 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 I do want to interact with them. And I'd want to have a connection with them. Right? Yeah. What happened? The kids from Leo Beck and Etivot never talked to each other. Yeah. Like literally. Mm. And there was this tremendous animosity and tension between one and the other. There was one time a year where either Leo Beck came to us or we went to Leo Beck with the middle school. It was very awkward. And middle school kids, maybe as you remember more recently than me, <laughs> could be really nasty to each other. And yeah. like the women in Leo Beck wore kippahs because it's a reform, right? Yeah. So that's fine. Uh, they wore talitot during tefillah, which is, that's that's all fine. And for us, they wore skirts, right? The women, and they, they, we had a uniform. They didn't. And the kids were like jostling, but like in a mean way, right? Mm. They're like, oh, why, why, why are those girls wearing kippahs? And the girls in Leo Beck, like, oh, those girls are wearing those stupid skirts. And like, it was tension. It was not... It was yeah. supposed to be unifying, but it wasn't unifying. Yeah. And the kids never talked to each other afterwards. Yeah. There was no natural interaction, like mm. dialogue, like, what Judaism do you have? What Judaism do I have? Okay, we can be friends. We can play basketball together. You know, I, I keep Shabbat. You don't. Fine. Let's find a way to, you know. That's interesting. But that... here, you like... I mean, uh, it's an obvious problem, but reality, Almost people brought, yeah. brought driving to shul, but you're in the same community as them. Yeah. Even though you know they have a different level of observance, you know that most of the members here don't keep kosher at home. Yeah. They'll more do than you would, one would think. 
Mm-hmm. There's a sizable amount of members that do keep kosher to various degrees at home, um, but but uh, but you're all under one roof, and you can all celebrate together. And you basically don't think that oh, I'm only friends with the from people, but I'm not going to be friends with the secular people or with the culturally Jewish people who come to the community. You don't have that. But in Toronto, you do have that where you literally have no interaction with them if you want to. That's interesting because it almost touches on culture mm-hmm. in the sense of... I've, I've been dealing with this myself in, 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 to a degree. Right. And I don't really talk about this much, but I'm going to talk about it publicly, obviously. Because mm. um, it's our podcast. Yeah, it is We talk podcast. about whatever we want. But it's whatever comes to mind, right? Yep. So, um, for me, having being having the B'nai Israel background from my family, and remembering being old enough to to remember how things were done in the B'nai Israel synagogue in Israel, because I haven't been well, I've been to India, but I was like two years old, so I'm not gonna count that. Right. Um. But having come here. To New Zealand, where the style of reading the Torah, for example, is Ashkenazi style. Well, kind of. And um, learning the Tamim is like, is like an Ashkenazi style. And you're doing the Tefillah Ashkenazi style. And Yom Kippur is the, the Piyotim are done in the Nusach Anglia style. And for me, there's, there's a bit of a, of a question in my mind about where does my Judaism lie culturally? Because it's almost like I'm neither here nor there. Yeah, you know, I didn't even touch on that. Maybe a little bit I did. But yeah, there's a huge... In smaller Jewish communities, you have um, Sephardi versus Ashkenazi, different types of Sephardi. Ibn Israel is obviously not the same as Moroccan, it's not mm. the same as Libyan, not the same as Algerian. Yemenite, for sure, is a whole different style of tefillah for sure mm. and of halacha as well for the most part yeah and here you all are everyone's binded to whatever framework of Judaism the community has adopted mm. and the nosach which is interesting because yes, how I that's a challenge pra- how I practice at home right. is very different to how I would say go to shul and practice in, right. in, in the sense of Chagim, right. for example, like we just talked about food, about about um, having halva as, as a as a dish for Rosh Hashanah, right the way through Tishrei, where it's not a it's not a thing. I mean, we still have apple and honey cake, which is delicious, but <laughs> that's a side point. Um, yeah, but the nasa is it's, interesting. It's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a identity crisis, I guess. It is, because in a larger, that's the advantage of a larger Jewish community, you can find your niche. Hmm. Depending on the type of Jewish community, but even in Toronto, there's a Sephardi center, and it's a Sephardi shul. There's Sephardi, and I think it's, I've gone there to Devon a couple times, so I like it, but it's not my go-to shul. But if you're a Sephardi, hmm. you don't have to bow down to the um, Ashkenazi shuls, because that's all you have. 
when you come to Wellington, it's Minhag Anglia because of the affiliate to the London Beitin, classically, and yeah. in fact that we're a Commonwealth country and all that. So you adopt Minhag Anglia, right? Yeah. Even though in England itself there's SNP, right? But so I think Spanish part... and Portuguese shuls, and there's different different types of shuls there. Of course, it's not just all Ashkenazi shuls. Mm. But yeah, that's what we've adopted here. Because look, people are predominantly white Ashkenazi here. Yeah. At the end of the day, but you'll have yourself and like Chaim and other people, Chaim yeah. Nachum and other people that bring in a different type of Judaism, and you're all together in the same room. And if somebody, by the way, as far as I'm concerned, wanted to read the Torah. With Sephardi Tamim or Yerushalmi Tamim or Bnei Israel, I don't know if you have specific Tamim. I would more than welcome that. Yeah. Um, you know, but but it's, it's, it's not in the sense diversity. It's not in the sense of. I don't want to read it that way, and I'll read it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was. Also, it's also an interesting point to say that when I came here, I was ten years old when I when we moved to New Zealand. So it was just sort of that stage where I'm starting to learn for my bar mitzvah parasha mm-hmm. and things, and um, and I, I'm I don't know who to go to, so I go to the rabbi. I don't have an option, an, another option over here, <laughs> is the thing, right? Um, so I went to Rav Devarat and I, and I learned whatever he taught me, however he taught me. Right, that's true. Because I didn't have the option to to learn in a different way. So, it's not an identity crisis in that sense, where, oh, I don't know where I've come from, and I don't know where I'm going. It's the, this is going to sound worse than, than it is in my mind, but it's like, I'm not, I'm not enough of a B'nai Israel to be a B'nai Israel, but I'm not, also, I'm not enough of a, uh, Ashkenazi. An Ashkenazi to yeah. be an Ashkenazi. Yeah, you're pulled between two things. If you were in Ramle or Lud mm. or Petah Tikva, right, you would go to Bnei Israel Shul. Yeah. And you would, sure. you would, and you, and you, you should learn the Bnei Israel way because that's the way of your father, literally, mm. and his father. Yeah. And that's what it should be, you know, if you're, and you should keep, you know, yeah, and that's really important. Yeah, but in terms of min hagim for hagim and things, I I keep the b'nai Israel way. I do exactly what my parents right. do. But the nusach, how it is to feel is really important to people. Yeah, it is. Mm. Um, it really, like really is. Certain people in our community also, they have their own tzidolim which are different. Yes, yes, and they won't. I know some people who won't be chazanim because they have their own nusach. Yeah. And the truth is, I respect that. I 100% respect that. I don't push mm. them on that because I think it's important for somebody to have their own nusach. Let's say somebody came with a Sephardi Sidur. Mm. Or let's say even someone like more nuanced to have a nusach Sephard instead of nusach Ashkenaz. Yeah. So when you're Chazan, you actually have to daven the nusach of the community. Of the community. But on your own, I see no problem. And somebody bringing their own sidur, davening with their own nosach, because you shouldn't have to give up your Jewish identity mm. as far as your affiliation just because the community holds by a certain nosach. Community has to choose. 
Yeah. Or a community could choose whatever the Chazan does. But you need a very different community to that's, do that. It seems a bit sketchy, though. It, yeah, it's it's for a community that's very knowledgeable and usually doesn't have a rabbi to lead them. And they mm. just have, like, their community. That's a different type of community. It's an yeah. interesting community model, like a rabbi-less community, that's a, which is a You'd very You'd be out of the door. <laughs> Here? Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, I definitely advocate for that where you have... Like, uh, in, especially in Israel, or yeah. in Toronto, yeah. you just have people coming together, and they're all knowledgeable, and people could read and lead services and all that. And you're just coming together for tefillah, mm. and why do you need a rabbi for that to sustain to, and pay all that money? Yeah, right. You do need a rabbi for a community, especially communities like this one, to write the ship and to make the halachic ruling and all the and engagement and all the different things. So you do need rabbis. I'm not saying you don't. But specifically to run tefillah, truth is you don't need a rabbi to run tefillah. No, you don't. Here you do, because not many people, virtually nobody knows how to lay the whole Torah aside from me. Mm. That's why in two years, I've never taken a Shabbat off. Except for Shabbat Bereshit, for my life. No, but I don't take it off. But it's true, I could but I haven't, I actually haven't taken a Shabbat off. The only time, by the way, I did take a Shabbat off is when we were on level four and I literally couldn't come into the shul. Mm. So because of COVID. It's so the first it's, time I had a Shabbat where I didn't have to one. run anything. Well, I know. Yeah, the one that, um, post prostration Where we couldn't come into the shul. Oh, yes. No, but that, yeah, that's true. But I still had a minion in my house. No. But that was. Yeah. That was weird. That was weird, but. That's a different topic. Different topic. <laughs> So, the whole concept of unity, you know, a lot of people preach unity. Mm. We should all be unified together, we should all be together, all Jews, blah, 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 blah. In reality, it does not happen in larger communities. Yeah. You know the people that are like-minded to you. Yeah. Not necessarily you as Amos, but anybody, right? You're Even me, I, I'd be in circles of people that are like-minded. There's some people that are more outreach-oriented, but still, you have... Different communities, they all compete with each other, even within orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't step foot into a reformer or conservative shul if you're orthodox, unless you're invited to a simcha or things like that. And even some people that some wouldn't. Some people don't. Some people don't. Yeah. Some people like us or like I would. Yeah. I'm not, you know, I would go in personally, but it's uh, a, I know people who don't. So I know the, the, the example of um, Ben Shapiro going to Dave Rubin's wedding. Yeah. Exactly the same. Yeah. Yeah, and you and uh, I'm not going, talking about going to interfaith weddings. No, but that's different. That's, that's different. But, like, but yeah, if you go to a reform shul for a wedding, conservative shul, I personally wouldn't have a problem with it. Obviously, if somebody wanted me to run uh, a wedding, I did that once in a conservative shul. But that's because I ran it, and it was my sister who got married, mm. and uh, the shul was the same shul that my grandfather was a cousin at for like 25 years. But uh, the rabbi gave me carte blanche to run it however I wanted to. <laughs> because that was my grandfather. Yeah. So that was a great wedding. Uh, but yeah, you don't really have that. And you have a tremendous amount of segregation. In smaller communities, you have unity. You can really work on the... And even here, there's the Temple Sinai, there's WJCC, there's history there. There's a lot of people that w- will come to both, yeah. there are mem- people members of both, and there are also people that well, don't want to go yeah. one or the other. Mm. 
Yeah. I don't know about the other, but for sure one way. Um, at least one way. At least one way. Yeah. But that is actually a minority of people. Yeah. Like I recently invited a lot of South Africans to the sukkah. I invited the chair and the former chair of the Smith Brothers, right? And their sister, yeah, yeah. Candace, yeah. to the to the sukkah. They came. They all came. Mm. They had no issue. And I had no issue. And said And I had, you know, I had no issue with where they're from or their affiliation or that they represent the other congregation. I don't view that as like a competition or for sure not. It is competition, but it's like friendly competition that provide everyone provides a service for Jewish points of engagement, right? Yeah. I don't view it as the other or an enemy mm. or somewhere where you can't go or telling community members don't go. There. I don't do that. Yeah. I don't believe that you should do that. You could try to bring people to you, but we'll never speak any ill word about the other congregation. Yeah. And not only that, I'll go there and support their events, whether it be their sixtieth mm. birthday when I went to yeah. and things like that. So in that sense it's it's more it's more hospitable. Yes. It's more welcoming. That's right. Just to just to be together in that sense where unity in that sense of the word exists very much where you go to shul here and you feel welcome because you are jewish and you come to shul right regardless of your denomination yeah you don't you're not asked i mean even things you may not even be aware of it but if you walk into certain shuls or certain institutions or schools in let's say Toronto and I know of actual schools that do this mm-hmm. you're literally judged on your religious level before you can send your kid to the school Yeah, I know of a case for example in Israel I won't mention the name of the school but there was a lawsuit what was yeah. the lawsuit it's a modern school very prominent one Yeah, in one of the major cities in um, Israel and one of the criteria that the family be religious. They have a long waiting list. It's a semi-private school. Mm. I mean, it's like it's an integrated school here. It's like it's partly yeah. government funded, partly, partly the parents partly. Yeah. because of the enrichment and whatnot. Uh, and this mother wore pants, mm. and and uh, she's from she keeps Shabbat, kashrut, all that. But she wears pants. I won't get into, by the way, if I agree or don't agree with that. That's irrelevant. But that's what she does. Their criteria was, if you don't wear pants, we don't know what you are. And at home, if you're really observant or not, if you've mm. the rules and other ways. So we're not going to accept your kid. They did not accept the kid. And she filed a lawsuit against them. And she won. Mm. Probably rightfully so. I think it's ridiculous. But... Like, for that criteria, regardless of what I think about pants for women, which is really complicated, by the way, I don't think it's clear-cut, but regardless of, even if you think that women should only wear skirts that are modest, right? Because some skirts aren't modest. I don't want to get too far down into that topic. But but um, even if that's what you think, and that's what I want for my own daughters, by the way, for mm. them, they can wear pants underneath the skirt for modesty reasons, or if they're hiking, or things like that. But, but uh you know, they should wear skirts. That's how it dresses. That's how we're raising them. You know, 
you know, I don't know if I'll be thoroughly disappointed if they wear pants, you know, but the, the future, that's their choice. But the point is, I don't think that if they're wearing pants, it defines them as not religious. Surely, if they yeah. want to send their kids to religious yeah. education, why not give the kid that opportunity? Yeah. But in Israel, you'll have those levels of minutia yeah. denying people of Jewish education. And how, far, how bad does it get? It gets really bad mm. in some of the in some of the more, I guess, ultra orthodox or Haredi institutions, where they'll say if you have a television in your home, you can't be in the school. Yeah, those are real before. things. You can't go to camp. You can't. It's like in smaller Jewish communities, you're like just come. Yeah, and I wrote a letter for for kids that are not halakhically Jewish, to go to Bnei Akiva camp, mm. which is the new policy, because I want to give them the opportunity. To convert in the future. Right? Now, there's it's a gamble. There's no guarantee they'll convert. Mm. Currently, if they wanted to get married to a Jewish person, it would be an intermarriage. Because yeah. they're Jewish, they're just not halakhically Jewish. But, you know, that is... But but in a, in a larger Jewish community, hard-pressed to accept that. They'd be on the outskirts. Yeah, they'll be... And they'd go to reform. Almost cast away. Or cast away. They wouldn't yeah. cast away. Not in every Jewish community. Not in every organization. But surely in many. Even the outreach ones. When it mm. comes to conversion, they don't want to touch it. It's Conversion also is a very interesting thing. Like converts, I just want to touch on that for a moment. Converts in small Jewish communities become the greatest assets to the Jewish community. Yeah. The greatest assets. Mm. Not to knock the people who aren't converts, but the people who are con- and I won't list, list off the name of converts in our community. Mm. You may know some of them, but the ones who, who do, a lot of them are in leadership positions. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Dafka because they're converts. Jews by choice. Mm. In smaller Jewish communities, converts are welcomed with open arms because it gives you more members. Mm. And it gives you more religious members. Think about it. Yeah. We try to get religious people. I would like it if more people would become from. You know, I'm not so like 100% open about it. I accept anybody, yeah. wherever they are, um, on the spectrum of religious observance, right? Even if they're not, if they come to shul, it's great. You know, I'm not going to say, oh, you're driving, so it's not good. I don't do that. Mm. Come, if you're coming, great. And I do have my goal plan, which is like, take it, you know, just take your Judaism one more step. Yeah. But even when I set the goal planner for this year, I didn't say you have to be religious. I didn't use the word religious at all. But that being said, the pillars of the driving force of a Jewish community are either very traditional, but not observant, or observant. People who are secular, who just come, can participate, but... Not necessarily, with some exceptions, of course, and not necessarily the driving force. Mm. Like, the, think who comes to Midian. Yeah. Not everybody's from. No. But, Certainly not. but they're committed to the Midian. They're committed to the concept of Midian. Yeah. Because they have that ingrained in them. Mm. Like your family, right? So, and your family's definitely not secular. They're definitely not secular Jews. No, we're definitely not. Absolutely not secular Jews. <laughs> You're very committed, right? 
Whatever you are, you could define it. I, I don't even know how to define your family. Well, I don't know how to define my own family. Oh, so there you go. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. You're very, at the very least, traditional um, slash possibly observant Jews. Mm. Um, you know, as far as kosher and Shabbat and all those things, very important. You know, whatever range of halacha, that's always a range. But yeah. you're definitely in the committed side of the community. Yeah. yeah absolutely. And I think that's... It's a different topic again, but that that's a testament to my parents. Absolutely. Who, who maybe as a child, you you don't necessarily appreciate as much, mm. but uh, you're like, oh, I have to go to shul as a child. Right. And now that I'm an adult, I'm like, I, I really want to go to shul. Like, right. It's, it's, a, it's a special thing that, that you get to go to shul on Shabbat and, and pray. And like, it's a, it's a different level of connection to your parents and I think it makes you sort of appreciate things on a different level to what you would um, if you just kind of blended into the background that's absolutely true yeah you have a whole different level of appreciation of what goes mm. into making something kosher and to how the shul runs and and I, and you have to work for your Judaism I think that's really the final point I want to touch on. Is uh, we talked about that before, but really, your Judaism is what you define it as. Yeah, which is really true everywhere, but in larger Jewish communities, you could be like, I can sit back and coast, and I can always receive drushas, and people are going to read, and people are going to do this, people are going to do that. Mm-hmm. Kiddush is going to be put on, and I can, you know, I'll I'll get to be a leader when I'm there if I want appreciation or if I want recognition or if I want to donate, right? But here, you've got to, you've got to work for If you don't work on your Judaism, nobody's going to do that for you and you're not going to get it from anywhere else. Yeah. You are the source of the community. You're not going to get it from the community. You have to be part of the community to get it from the community. Yeah. You have to be active participant in running community life in Juda- for a Jewish community. When it comes to all walks of life. Yeah. Even when it comes to events. You're not going to have organizations that have a programming and a marketing director, right? Paid staff that in New York or Toronto or London that are going to put on these events for you. And yeah. you can just show up and volunteer if you like it. No. How is there going to be an event? If you set up the chairs. Mm. How is there going to be an event? If you take initiative. Yeah. If you help set the budget, or if you join the board, mm. and now you're thrusted into a leadership position. Yeah. And if you're not, you know, it's just, the event is not going to happen. Mm. It won't always happen because the rabbi wants it. No, it's got to be community-led. Mm. And that's really one of the things that my wife and I are trying to uh, encourage yeah. community people, community members to take initiative not just in terms of services, but also in terms of events, initiatives, and, and podcasts. Things. And podcasts. Like this one. <laughs> so, very good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's interesting because um, I remember when I started coming to the Monday morning shul, or the shul after the, yeah. the, the minyan on Monday morning that we have on the Talmud, um, Rabbi Mizrahi mentioned that um, because I used to get the table out and I used to take all the chairs mm-hmm. and set them up. Right. And he said that it's the enablers of those things that do the minor things as minor as 
shifting chairs to a table so that people can learn that are not the driving force but they are the ones that do the most for the learning even though that they don't necessarily you know might not contribute to the learning a lot right that's all absolutely yeah it's called a shimush shimush mm. yeah and that's why uh, for example Yehoshua um, in the Tanakh why did he succeed Moshe because the Midrash says he set up the Safsalim right, the benches for Moshe's classes yeah that's all he did he dealt with the logistics mm. but it also means he was close to Moshe yeah. But he also had buy-in to the process. You have buy-in to your Judaism because you you actively engage it and you actively work on it. Yeah. Whereas in larger Jewish communities, you can be... You still have intermarriage rates that are very high yeah. in larger Jewish communities. Yeah, you do. It's not like, oh, larger Jewish communities... Maybe outside of Israel, I should say, right? Hmm. You, you know, intermarriage rates are low because you have so many Jews to, to choose from. Yeah, we also have a lot of non-Jews to choose from. Yeah. And if you don't buy into your Judaism, hmm. you know, there's 80,000 Jews in Denver, Colorado. Yeah. And there's 80% intermarriage rate. Wow. Yeah, That's very Toronto. There's oh three hundred thousand anywhere between a quarter of a million, three hundred thousand Jews. What's the intermarriage rate? Guess about the same, about eighty. No, well, far less. Well, I don't know. Forty percent, forty percent. But still, that means two out of every five Jewish Jewish people marry non-Jewish people. Yeah. But you have also people. Think of the people you have in Toronto. First of all, you have anybody worldwide today. But even the close, relatively close proximity. You have Montreal, you have New York, you have New Jersey, right? You have Connecticut, mm. you have, have uh, Halifax, you have Winnipeg, you have anybody in Canada, really, because Canadians travel around all of Canada. Yeah. There's, there's, you know, over 330, possibly 350,000 Jews in all of Canada. Yeah, it's a big right? Jewish community in Canada. And there's 5.7 yeah. million Jews in the States. Yeah. And people from Canada travel to the States all the time. And it's very, mm. it's like New Zealand, Australia, they can marry each other because yeah. relatively, yeah. it's relatively close. It's relative. But you have New Zealand, San Francisco, may or may not, right? And still you have 40% intermarriage. There's no guarantee that if you're in a larger Jewish community, mm. you your Judaism, quote unquote, is safer. Yeah. I mean, there's high intermarriage rate in Wellington. And that's a different topic. Yeah. Though it is the disadvantage of living in a small Jewish community. Mm-hmm. But if you really have buy-in, then your kids will grow up um, wanting Judaism. Yeah. They're not give, getting it either shoved down their throats or just because they went to the school having to re-examine their identity. You have to establish your identity very early, very fast, mm. and be very aggressive about it in a good way. Um, about being Jewish, aggressive it's a, it's, is a very interesting word to use there, though. Yeah, but like you got to be, yeah, you've got to attack it in a good way. You've mm-hmm. got to, you've got to be active, right? Um, to use a cricket analogy, you have to like, <laughs> you, you can't wait for the ball to come to you. No, you can't. You can't. You can't you wait for the ball to, to come to you. Got to step into it. Got to yeah. step into that and hit the six, right? Yeah. 
That's we good. have to do one of those. Is that a good analogy? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it's good, right? <laughs> All right, it's really good. <laughs> Don't wait for the ball to come to you. And 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 in, uh, if you're in Toronto, you're like waiting for the ball to come to you because I sent my yeah. kid to the school. Da, 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 da. And you know what happens? You have people that will completely throw off Judaism. Mm. Yeah, right? I, have, I have relatives, I have siblings, or one of my siblings, that completely threw off Judaism. Yeah, albeit he's now engaged to a Jewish girl, we're really happy about it. But you know, he he, there's no, and he grew up in a Jewish home, and he has all the infrastructure, everything's there. Mm. There's a lot of factors that go into it, but there's no guarantee that. And this is the myth. This is the pr- promo to for more Jews to come to Wellington. Is we need to grow, but. The beauty is Wellington's not going to be like Melbourne. I don't think we're ever going to get 70,000 Jews here. Never say never, but I don't think that's even the goal. The goal is to go from like 2,000 to like 5,000. Yeah. Or possibly 10,000. Yeah. Which would be great. Uh, and even then, you know, to maintain it as a small but growing and sustainable Jewish community. Uh, and there's a beauty to it that you define the Judaism here. You, you know, you want Judaism to, to succeed, you have to do something about it. You have to attack it. You have to be aggressive about it. You go to the ball, ball doesn't come to you. Mm. And that's really what it is. And that's my number one pitch. I tell people all the time. No, you switch to baseball. No, pitch as a marketing <laughs> pitch. You have pitch and cricket. The pitch. Yeah, you have the pitch. The pitch. That's a different podcast. That, that's a teaser for... That's a teaser for Purim. For Purim. Purim. <laughs> Baseball versus cricket. <laughs> Who's going to win? Hint. I am. <laughs> that's what I said too. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually going to win. Because baseball's a very lazy man sport. Um, no, it isn't. We'll find out. Um, no. It's a different skill set. It is a different skill set. So... So that's the that's that's my pitch when I tell them like my marketing pitch to people, which hopefully is is working for some of the uh, families that have come here and have been caught here and doing COVID and things like that. You know, hopefully, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they see a beauty in it. One person told me they've gone to shul. This is a quote: a lady who lives in Australia uh, was here. Now I've come to shul more more times here. Um, in the span of like five months than I would have in like a whole year in Melbourne. Mm. I thought that was a really fascinating quote and I didn't even prompt her on it. She, this lady just came up to me and told me that. Wow. It's really special because you know that you're needed here and you're not just another cog yeah. in the Jewish community. Yeah. You are needed mm. and therefore when you come it has a significant impact. Mm. Instead of, I'm just another person here, yeah. and I can be in the back and nobody will talk to me. Well, it's the interesting uh, point of um, being the 10th person in the Minyan, mm-hmm. where we almost celebrate the fact that we have a, a 10. That's right. Over here. And it's, yeah. that's, there's a beauty to that. There is. Um, okay, so I think that's us for this week. Um, our next topic is one that I really want to get into, which is confidence and how the Torah approaches confidence and probably learn a bit more about ourselves and 
how we how we talk about because um, we touched on a bit of confidence today, but not not to the point that we wanted to get to. Um, so that's it for this week. Like, subscribe, and all that other good stuff. Follow us on SoundCloud and leave a comment with any suggestion of any p- topics that we might that you might find interesting that you want us to talk about and we'll see you next time and also let us know um what you like about small jewish communities if you live one yes uh and uh what experiences you've had in large versus small jewish communities as a point of comparison and if any of these points resonated with you then let us know or didn't or you want to argue with us go ahead yeah argue with us we love that yeah we didn't disagree this week, which no, is not yet. different. That's not good. <laughs> Next week we'll good. have to disagree. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> All right, bye. <laughs> <laughs>